Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat with your host, Andy Storch. The show is dedicated to helping you develop the most important part of your organization, the people. If you are in HR or talent development, or you just want to learn how to get the best out of your people, then you are in the right place. This podcast is designed to give you what you need to be successful in the world of talent development. Now, here's your host, Andy Storch. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you are joining me today. I've got a wonderful guest for you, Lori Rudiman is a former human resources leader turned writer, entrepreneur, and speaker. CNN recognized her as one of the top five career advisors in the United States, and her work has been featured on NPR, The New Yorker, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and Vox. She frequently delivers keynote speeches at businesses and management events around the world, now mostly virtually, and hosts a popular podcast focused on fixing work. She lives with her husband and her cats in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Lori has been heavily involved in HR, her book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career, was published by Henry Holt and Company in January 2021. I'm excited to have Lori on the podcast today. Lori, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I'm stoked to be here and uh, it's been a long time coming. You know, I'm a fan. It has, yes. We were connected by a mutual friend a while back. Of course, I've listened to your podcast, Punk Rock HR, and I know we have been, we've chatted, we followed each other on social media, and we've talked about doing these interviews for some time. So it's awesome to make this happen. And also really cool because we published books around the same time. Mine came out about two months before yours on a very similar subject. And so I know we're really aligned on this, but I'm excited to dig in, especially to your book and how people can really bet on themselves and take more ownership of their careers, and also talk about HR and L&D and how L&D professionals can support their people in having more career success. So before we get into that, I'd love to talk about a little bit about your career and how you got into all this and how you made the transformation that I read on your bio from blaming others to owning your career. Well, don't get me wrong. I still like to blame others. That's like part of the fun of life. Come on now. Well, every story begins in a really boring way where someone is having a moment of inflection, a moment of crisis. And mine was at an airport in the middle of America when I worked for a small pharmaceutical company called Pfizer. Have you heard of that company? Right? Just teeny tiny, not in the news or anything. 
Yeah, I was really upset working there. I had been working in human resources for over a decade. And as I got better at my job, I grew more and more unhappy. And my role was to go around the world and lay people off, including my husband. So I had this moment at the airport where it was just weighing on my soul and ganging up on me. And like the business traveler that I was, I was drinking a bottle of Pepsi and eating a bag of Starburst for dinner, reading in Us Weekly, totally brain dead, totally checked out of my own life. And I had a moment where I read a story about Courtney Love in Us Weekly magazine. And I thought, oh my God, if Courtney Love can have this amazing life, why not me? And it set me down this path of really prioritizing my own career, putting myself first, and focusing on continuous learning and learning how to take a risk. And all four elements wrapped up in individual accountability, self-leadership forms the foundation of my book. So that's kind of my origin story. Once I realized that I had to take accountability for my life, there was no going back to that world in human resources, not for me. When you say putting yourself first and taking accountability in your life. Tell me more, like, what does that mean to you? Well, working for Pfizer, one of the things I quickly recognized is they always had money. They had money to take people out to dinner. They had money to, you know, make sure the executives earn 237 times more than the average worker. They had money for corporate jets and the helicopter. And I saw all of this ostentatious wealth and was actually part of it. I earned a great living. I had a bonus that paid for my cell phone, even though I was traveling around and firing people. And that kind of cognitive dissonance really made me reflect on my life. How was I spending my time? How was I allocating my own individual resources? When I felt like I couldn't quit, was that true? So I started to question the stories I was telling myself. And once I realized that I could run my life like a business and I was the CEO of my life, I couldn't go back to taking orders from a dude who went to Pepperdine and thought he was the boss of me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it does make a big difference. And I talk about this all the time too, right? A lot of, so many people are kind of drifting through their careers, right? Waiting for someone to tell them what to do. And that's pretty normal versus taking the initiative, taking ownership, taking responsibility for everything. And that also means that if you're unhappy with your situation, that's on you, right? It's on you to make a change, right? You made that change. For sure. And it's not like I had this epiphany at an airport and walked into the CEO's office and said, hey, Jeff Kindler, CEO at the time, take this job and shove it. Instead, I started to work on a plan. And the foundation of the plan was my individual well-being. You know, I gained a ton of weight while working at Pfizer. I wasn't eating right. Clearly, I was eating dinner at the airport and grabbing whatever was, you know, available at Hudson's. So really doubling down on well-being, which meant sleeping better, exercising, telling people no, setting boundaries. I also got my butt into therapy and asked some questions of myself and looked for guidance, looked for advice from people who actually knew what they were doing and were experts in human psychology and not just taking advice from authors off the shelf. Even though I am now one of those authors, I wanted to go to people who actually had some domain expertise. And then finally, I went back So I found a path towards learning. So that meant going back and studying writing and creative writing and the things that I loved. And then also being really curious about how to open up a business because that's ultimately what I wanted to do. So individual learning was not something that I can do overnight. So between the time I decided to leave Pfizer and the day I actually left, it was almost a year, but it was a good year well spent. 
and I had a paycheck. So you're starting to make some changes. You're creating a plan. You're working that plan and you've got a paycheck along the way. I like how you mentioned investing in well-being, working with a therapist and really knowing the difference. I think a lot of people are not even doing any type of learning, but there are kind of levels to that, right? There's getting the book and reading it. And then there's hiring a coach or a therapist or nutritionist to really work the plan specifically for you. You know, what I really discovered about learning is that we're in the golden age of learning and there's absolutely no excuse not to be curious and to follow that curiosity. Even back then, there was the internet, there was YouTube back then, there was all sorts of ways to go out and find the thing that I was curious about. Now, could I get a certification? Maybe, maybe not, that costs money, but I could at least get on the path towards the thing I was pursuing. But a lot of people are snobby about learning. They think learning has to be this formal program, even though you and I are learning experts, right? This is what we do for a living. We know all learning is worthwhile. For us, we say, well, if it's not specifically focused on a goal, I don't care. What I have discovered is that the act of learning anything makes me a better learner when it matters. So it's important for me to just go and pursue things. Like I foster dogs and that's a new thing for me. So I've been studying about dogs and dog behavior and dog psychology and how to treat dogs. And I'm learning so much and I know that's going to have a downstream effect in other areas of my life. So this is an early weird example of what I did at Pfizer, but if I was curious about something and there were a lot of things I was curious about, I actually put things in a hat and started to pull it out. And I was like, oh, all right, the history of Istanbul. I want to know more about that. And so I went on the internet and learned a little bit. And it turns out since that time, I've been to Istanbul twice. It came in handy, but it was just like a fun thing to be curious about. So I don't know. I think all learning is worthwhile. And frankly, it pivoted my attention away from my terrible job. Mm, I like that. A long time ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jeff Hoffman, who is one of the co-founders of, geez, I'm trying to remember, one of the travel sites as well as the kiosks he's using the airport. He's a billionaire. And one of the biggest pieces of advice he gave was to learn something every single day. And it could be something random that you're curious about, like Istanbul or dog training or whatever it is. Just learn something new every day and it will continue to grow your brain, your learning capabilities, and it gets you in the habit of learning all the time. And, you know, Tony Robbins says almost all fulfillment comes from contribution and growth. So I feel like if I'm not learning, I'm not growing, then I'm going the opposite direction. So I want to learn every day as well. Well, you know, in my book, I quote the esteemed William Burroughs, <laughs> who is a crazy old junkie writer, beat poet, you know, but he really felt that if you're not learning, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, what's the point of life and once you start to understand that stagnation really is detrimental it's like moving backwards it's just like standing still while the world goes forward and you're missing out on all these beautiful things around you it compels you to be a little bit curious and that's what i saw happening in my career although i had some domain expertise in hr the world was passing me by and i couldn't spend another minute reading Us Weekly. <laughs> that was going to be over for me. So once I put down the Us Weekly, put down the Pepsi, put down the Starburst, and really embraced individual accountability, I could no longer operate in a state of learned helplessness. Now, there are systemic reasons why people can't do certain things, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, they're all real. But there's also this thing called mindset. And for me, I had been around enough executives and top performers who operated in a way and with a mindset where they were going to try no matter what. 
And the only difference between them and me is that they made the effort. You know, did they fail? Absolutely they failed. I wasn't privy to all of those failures, but now I know that. But for whatever reason, I was taking myself out of the game before I could even play it. And I just felt like those days had to be over. I don't know, Andy, you must have felt like that at some point in your life, right? Oh, absolutely. I've felt like that for a lot of my life and my career. And there was actually a turning point for me. I'll never forget this. I was at a mastermind retreat run by a friend of mine. And I was talking about how I aspired to be sort of a you know big name speaker, someone that people recognize and that makes a difference and a big impact in the world. But I just didn't feel like it was really attainable because... I'm not those other people, right? Like I'm just a regular guy that's just talking to people and and being curious. And this guy named Adam McCarty, who was in the room, turned to me. He he really had not spoken up much the entire time we were there. He's kind of a quiet guy. And he looked at me and he said, Andy, the only difference between you and them is they're doing it. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, ah. So true, man. Like, what do I say to that? Like, you're right. And ever since then, I'm like, I'm not going to make excuses. I'm just going to go follow my dreams and, and chase this stuff. You know, people out there are talking about imposter syndrome as if it was just discovered and also as if it's only the domain of women. And one of the really interesting things about imposter syndrome is that it's existed forever and it's gender neutral. Like everybody has imposter syndrome, even the most successful people out there, you know, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, they may not admit it, but in their quiet moments, they've got it as well. But for me, one of the cool things in my life that I've learned is a little technique called the pre-mortem to test things out. So whenever I feel like I'm gonna fail at something or I'm terrible or I'm a loser, I set a timer for a minute and I write down all the ways I'm gonna fail. Just a minute. And this is an old stoic exercise that's actually used by NASA and Cisco and IBM to really figure out how you're gonna fail. But the pre-mortem can be used for you. You set that timer for a minute, you write down how you're gonna fail, When the timer goes up, you look at that list and it's your roadmap to tackle before you do the thing you dream about. So if you're worried about being a speaker, but you don't think you have charisma or the ability to tell a story, that may be true. And you're not an imposter. You may be failing at that right now, but you can work on that. And the fact that you do this exercise before you do the thing you want to do gives you a 30% competitive advantage at succeeding. So for me, that's not nothing. If you're interviewing for that dream job, write a list down and just, you only need a minute of the silly, funny, and also accurate ways you're gonna fail at interviewing at that job. And then before you interview for it, fix your stuff. This advice changed my life. So, you know, I thought about writing this book for many years and I talked myself out of it for a long time. And then I wrote down a list of the ways I was going to fail. Wouldn't get an agent, couldn't get a book deal, couldn't tell a story. So what did I do? I got a book coach who coached me on writing a proposal helped me through getting an agent. The agent helped me through all the negotiations and the meetings with the big five publishers. And my book actually went to auction. There was a bidding war for my manuscript. and I got a great book advance. So it was beyond my wildest dreams. And the pre-mortem, man, that thing was essential. So one thing you can do if you think you're a loser, or even if you think you're a winner, but you just don't want to fail, it's where it's at. I love that exercise. And the other thing it does is I find that so many people let fear hold them back and they don't even really think through what it is that they fear, right? People fear rejection, judgment from others, but you ask them questions about like, well, what could happen? What would it look like if you failed? And, and in your case, if it didn't work out, maybe the book didn't get published traditionally. Maybe you had to self-publish it. Maybe you still did that and nobody really bought it, but you could still be proud that you put a book out in the world. You wouldn't die. You wouldn't lose your friends. You wouldn't lose your family. Like it wouldn't be really that bad. Right. And you would learn from it and get to try again. 
Absolutely. I think the other thing is that people are crazy about the postmortem. They love it. Let's look back and assign blame and figure out how it went wrong. But when it comes time to start a new project, they're like these relentless optimists. They forget what happened last time they went through an enrollment or they launched a website or they wanted to open a consultancy and they don't learn the mistakes of the past. Now, it's very difficult to get people who are excited to sit down in a team and talk about potential failure. They may feel like Debbie Downers or Don Downers. They may feel like you're negative. They may think that might interrupt momentum. But if you can do that and then do a Venn diagram of all the potential failures that the room sees, and then look for outliers, blind spots, boy, you give your team and your project a competitive advantage. So I had to put the pre-mortem in the book because the pre-mortem is the thing that has helped me since the day I decided to leave Pfizer. I love that. All right, before we move on, I do have to ask you one more question going back to your Pfizer days, because you were already in a unique position. You were going around laying people off, which has to be tough on you mentally as you're going through that experience. But you mentioned laying off your husband. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, I put it in my book. It's weird because I worked in human resources and my husband worked in the manufacturing and R&D division. So we didn't have anything in common at work and it was perfect. But I caught wind because HR can't keep a secret that the whole entire R&D department globally was going to be reconfigured and there were going to be massive layoffs. In fact, they were sheltering me from this information because they didn't want me to tell my husband because he was a senior level individual. But nobody can keep a secret in HR. That's the thing. And so I heard about it and I came home and told my husband, you know that big meeting, that town hall that's coming up? You're going to lose your job. And he said to me, what do you know? You just work in HR. Well, we've been now married almost 20 years, so the story ends happily, but <laughs> it was a rough night because I'm like, what do you mean, what do I know? So right there and then told me everything I needed to know about what people who even love me thought of my job. But more importantly, when they gave them the news, that really broke us because we were, you know, a two income family with one company between us and I didn't much care for my job. And I thought, oh my God, now it's my responsibility for health insurance to make sure that we've got some income coming in, to make sure that, you know, we're safe, all the good stuff. And I don't even like this job. And at the time we were, I was trying for a family. I mean, it was just really super stressful. So yeah, that was not a high point in our life, but luckily my husband came back and said, I'm so sorry, I should have listened to you. So for all of you out there who are married, don't be like my husband, <laughs> be, you know, receptive even when it's negative. But I understand it because when someone tells you you're going to lose your job, that is, a nightmare scenario for most individuals. So I get it. I want to go to the, what you said, the quote about HR, because we both have a lot of listeners, followers who work in HR, and they maybe either hear that, hey, what do you know, you just work in HR, or they imagine that other people are thinking it and saying it. Why do you think that is still the perspective of HR and what can we do about it? So human resources is a dual use function. So dual use in technology means that it has good applications and bad applications. And HR is one of those dual use departments that could be used for good to move the organization forward, but its purview for the most part is to make sure that the organization is indemnified against lawsuits. That's it, that's its number one function. And from there, there's a lot of theory out there that if you're doing the work for employees, you're going to automatically indemnify yourself against litigation. But we know that's not true. People sue for all kinds of reasons. 
And we think, well, if we invest in a learning and development program, if we've got a great wellness and well-being program, happy employees are going to be more productive. Uh-uh. Someone's going to come to work with all their drama and all their heartache, and it's going to spill over, and something's going to happen, and you need that regulatory and compliance function to clean it up. So I don't know how you get over having a department that is for all people, and yet for the organization at the same time. I mean, intellectually, it's dishonest, it's disingenuous. There have been attempts to break it apart, to defund it, to you know move recruiting to marketing and sales and L&D over to operations or blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, you have a bunch of leaders who just like business and don't like people. And until you get to the core of that tension, there's always going to be tension in this big compromise we call HR. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And things have changed a lot for HR and for organizations, right? I mean, I, I know coming from the history of HR that it was more about just how do we keep people online? How do we deal with regulations? How do we avoid lawsuits? But we want for those of us, you know, those in HR who want to be more successful, they want a seat at the table. They've got to get find ways to become more strategic, right? And and think more progressively. How do I or help the organization achieve strategic goals versus just put out fires and avoid lawsuits, right? Sure. Yes, but there is always going to be the core of human resources that's responsible for compliance and employment lawsuit mitigation. And until you give that to maybe a compliance department or back to the legal department and you have HR only focused on human performance and potential, you're never going to get around that tension. And so you know, I sympathize with my friends and colleagues in human resources. And when I say HR, I'm thinking like a CEO because your CEO is not like, oh, there's a difference between recruiting and people performance and, you know, employer branding. No, they just call it HR. They still all to this day call it HR. So if that's what it is and we believe it can be something different, we need to make the case for change. And so far, we've not been very successful. I want to shift back to talking about how people, you know, can accelerate in their careers. But before we get there, one more question about HR and L&D. When we think about careers, and I think you and I are aligned on this, but maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, there's a responsibility on both sides, right? Individuals have responsibility to take ownership of their career, and they're expecting some type of support from HR, L&D, from their organization. How can HR professionals, learning and development professionals best support their people and what what mistakes, what are they getting wrong right now that's not supporting them? So that's a loaded question because more and more of the workforce are becoming independent workers, contractors, and consultants. So this premise that workers are responsible for their development and need support from their employer is applying to a smaller and smaller segment of our workforce. But theoretically, yeah, I mean, if you're going to employ someone, you're not only responsible for who they are today and making sure they can do their job safely, effectively, but also growing them in that field or beyond moving forward. But I would like to say that the best L&D leaders that I've ever met don't feel it's their singular purpose to own the learning function. They are partners and collaborators with people managers and really put the onus on leaders to drive, to set the tone, to set the agenda. And the L&D function could advise on best practices, they can bring the best technology forth, they can really talk about a strategy, but it's not theirs to own and they know it. And there's something really 
beautiful about that, about being professionally detached and confident and mature enough to say, you know what, I know what works. I know what leading edge companies are doing out there. Here are my recommendations, but it's up to you, CFO, CEO, leader extraordinaire in the field to really implement this. So I think the concept of professional detachment, which is something I write about all the time, is super important because you are not your job. And you, especially in learning and development, are not necessarily responsible for the outcome of what you recommend. So it's a bit of a mind game to play. But again, that distance is the healthiest way to do it. That's what I think. I don't know. What do you think about that, Andy? Well, I agree. And I think that the job of learning and development, talent development, is to, and it's different in every organization, but provide those development opportunities to people, which I think people want and expect when they go into organizations, and to hopefully enable those people leaders to be able to have more of those career conversations, those coaching conversations, which is we know is the most critical aspect of helping people with their career success is getting that coaching and support from their managers, which a lot of people are not getting. It just reminds me of so many things in my own life where someone would hand me a map and I wasn't ready. And I think a lot of L&D professionals feel that, a lot of HR in general professionals feel that way. You're giving your organization the map to success. You're giving them everything they need to be enabled, to be you know, innovative, to disrupt the marketplace. And there's just something about individual accountability within the people management function, within individual leaders. They just have to prioritize it. And for so many leaders out in the field, they're like, nah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to get my hands dirty with the people who report to me. That is so frustrating. And I see tons of L&D leaders taking that on, you know, really taking it personally, feeling like there's more that they can do. Can I be more strategic? Can I make the case a different way? And sometimes you can't, and you gotta be okay with that. Knowing that the organization is just not ready to go where you believe it can go. It's a hard thing to know and to come to work every day and to take that paycheck, but I think it's more common than we talk about. Yeah, I agree. Let's get back to the individual and how people can become more successful in their own careers. Why is it when you look at certain people, some people just seem to be so successful. They're moving from promotion to promotion and others seem so stuck, like they can't figure it out, right? And we talked a little bit about this with our conversation about imposter syndrome, but why is that happening? Well, if I were a PhD psychologist, I would have a completely different career. I've often thought about going back to school to do that because I'm so curious about human behavior because I think there's a lot of different vectors into this conversation. Like there's generational wealth and messages that families have around learning and possibilities. You know, if you come from a very successful family, there are expectations about how you will perform in life. Your zip code determines a lot. But there are these people who, given everything, would prefer to be stuck. And I know this because I worked in human resources, right? Doing employee relations for all those years. And it's like, dude, you've got all kinds of advantages and your peers are outperforming you. What's your problem? And they're just mired in their own drama. They're mired in what's going on. So back in the day, I would want to give them like a 15 point plan. You need to do this. You need to do that. But now I recognize it's all about the small wins. You practice in the small moments to nail it in the big moments when it counts. So if someone has, you know, attendance problems, they're disengaged from work, you know, there are big things that you can prescribe for them to do or you can threaten them, but you can also come back with these really small things, just these small gains. 
And Andy, you and I are both athletes, right? We know this. Nobody ever ran a marathon on day one. You know, I'm back in marathon training for the Chicago Marathon, and I'm just doing baby sprints right now. There is no way I could run a marathon anytime soon. But the little individual things matter. And so as a leader, as a coach, as a people manager, even now, when people come to me and talk about some of their big systemic challenges, we break it apart. And I want to also throw one other thing out. Show me someone who's a top performer, and that person is an amazing time management guru. Chaos starts in the Outlook calendar. So if anybody wants to tackle anything big in their lives, they want to work in their marriage, they want to improve their jobs, they want to get promoted, they want to write a book, you know, want to go back to school, start in your Outlook calendar. And talk a little bit about that in my book. I do some coaching around that when people come to me. But if you're not building in core time for well-being, learning, your actual work, you're not time blocking, you're not building in time for rest, you're never going to do anything great in this world. The subtitle of your book is to how to put yourself first and finally take control of your career. What does it mean to put yourself first and why don't more people do it? I mean, I know we're getting stuff thrown at us all the time, right? We're often responding to emails and texts and social media and our requests from our manager and our team. Why don't people, more people put themselves first? Well, Andy, especially in the age of COVID, it's so hard to say no. There are fears about what will happen if you don't look productive. There are fears about what will happen if you're not present. So presenteeism is a thing that many of us are facing right now. There's also just increasing demands from people we love. You know, we're home all the time and we want to be present for our family. We want to be present for our friends and our jobs. It's very difficult to carve out time, but you are no good to anybody unless you're good to yourself. And so in the book, I talk a lot about that. You know, a lot of individuals in the professional workforce are constantly being pinged all day long with emergencies or things that are urgent. And so good communication skills are super important. Like, do you have a common understanding in your team around the definition of emergency? You know, I've coached so many men and women who before COVID were taking calls at seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. All they did was handle problems. And that's what adult work is, problem solving, but it's also having time off of work. And the question for me is always, what is an emergency? Because one person's emergency is another person's just dumb anxiety attack, right? Doesn't really have any factual basis. So getting some common language around emergency. Also meeting with your team and understanding the rules of engagement around time is a really important conversation to have. You can be really honest, especially right now when things are just so weird and say, I'm burnt out and I need to do things better. Can we talk about time blocking? Can we talk about shared calendars? Can we talk about the things we need to do in order to focus back on our own well-being? The final thing you can do is practice this concept I just talked about, which is professional detachment. Treat your job like a client. Would you let a client boss you around? Would you let a client do the things you were doing? No, you would fire that client. The good thing about having a job in corporate America is that it's very difficult to get fired. So if you're working 80 hours a week, try working 76. What are they going to do? Fire you? No way. Try working 72. Try working 32 hours a week and see if anybody notices the difference. In fact, I would take a slacker who worked 30 hours a week and got their job done versus someone who was always telling me how committed they are and working 80 hours a week. I want the slacker. Give me the person who works efficiently, gets it done, and goes and does their other thing. 
that's the person I want on my team. That's how I feel. And that person in some ways is putting themselves first. And what I'm hearing from you is so many people are overworked. They're burnt out because they're responding to things all the time. They can't shut things off, right? Especially during this pandemic, we're all working virtually. The computer's right there. Work is coming all the time around the clock. And we need to be willing to invest in ourselves and our well-being. And the key to that, what I'm hearing from you is setting boundaries, is being willing to say, I'm not going to take these late night meetings, that I am going to restrict the hours I work, that I'm going to be more efficient, and I'm going to make sure that I spend some time on me taking a walk, doing yoga, taking a breath, talking to friends, whatever it may be, that a lot of people just need to make that change. Yeah. Embedded in setting boundaries is this thing we keep going back to, which is a mindset that you're worth it and that you have control and you can do it. You know, you don't have to tell your boss that you can never work on a Friday. Like I'm not saying you're gonna go in and say, I'm done, I'm not working Fridays, but you can take the PTO that's been allocated to you. And how about taking it and not spending that time with your children? Like taking a couple hours and doing something for you. You are allowed to do that. That is within your capacity. If you are listening to this podcast, you have time to do something for you. And maybe this podcast is that thing for you. Do more of it, do whatever it is that gives you energy and restores your soul so that you can go back to work and work at the intersection of purpose and meaning. And that's what this is all about. I love that. Lori, we've got to wrap things up here. The book again is called Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. We talked about setting those boundaries. We talked about the importance of small wins and what it means to put yourself first and how to get out of reaction mode. What's one more thing for people who are listening, nodding their heads, thinking like, yes, I've got to get out of this reaction mode, set more boundaries, start to put myself first in my career. What's one more tip or thing that people can do to really bet on themselves and put themselves ahead of all this other noise that's going on? I would like to leave everybody with a reminder that you can do a pre-mortem and test your fears, test your anxieties, check those stories that you tell yourself to see if they're true or not. And if they are true, if you're the loser you think you are, Good for you for figuring it out before you went out there and did that thing you're scared of. Go fix it. Love that. Absolutely. Lori, for anybody listening that wants to get the book, get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, they can go to punkrockhr.com and fall into this ecosystem that I've created. And apologies in advance, you're going to see a lot of cats and dogs. I hope that's okay. <laughs> yes. And follow Lori on Instagram if you want to see more cats and dogs on a regular basis like I do. Last question, Lori. Ask all my guests this and this is going to be a softball for you. My book, of course, is called Own Your Career, Own Your Life. When you hear that, what does it mean to you for someone to own their career? It means that they take individual accountability, good and bad. They actually own their career journey, their story, and they don't apologize for it. In fact, give me someone who doesn't apologize for their journey. And I tell you, I'm looking at a future CEO. That person impresses the hell out of me. So that's what own your career and own your life means to me. I love it. Lori, thank you so much for coming on. The book, again, it's called Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. I'm so excited about this book and everything that you are doing, Lori. I'm looking forward to keeping our conversation going and talking more soon. And thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, appreciate you. All right, take care. Thanks again for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help other people find the show. And as always, you can find all of our episodes and tons of free resources on our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Thank you again and take care.